Welcome to the Evolvepreneur podcast channel, which is sponsored by Evolvepreneur.biz, a new online community-based platform designed to help develop your skills and knowledge to be massively successful in this new digital age. Your host today is John North, who is a three-time number one international best-selling author and strategic marketer. John's passion is to help business owners to master the online marketing world. Welcome to Evolvepreneur podcast channel. I'm your host, John North. This podcast is sponsored by Evolpreneur.club, who is helping entrepreneurs make a difference. Our special guest on the show today is Casey Carroll. He's the founder of Action Advertising Agency. He's an expert in leveraging social media, especially Facebook, to help grow businesses. He's obsessed with just one thing, creating an insane amount of return on investment for his clients. Welcome, Casey, to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me today, for sure. Cool. All right, so just give me a little bit of background um, about who you are and what you do and a little bit about your journey to where you got to now. So a little bit more expanded than just, um, you know, the standard kind of thing. I just want to interest to know how you got to where you basically running an ad agency sure. um, and, and how you got there. Yeah, I'll do my best to try to make a, a, a long story short because I could talk all about all sorts of ins and outs and ups and downs across the entire journey. But uh, yeah, so I guess first off, a little bit about me. You know, I, I um, am the, the owner and founder of a company called Action Advertising Agency and I work with, uh, mainly medical practices in the United States and auto dealers. Um, I also do some consulting as well. Um, and right now I work with, you know, somewhere between 20 to 25 at any point in time, uh, different clients across the United States. Uh, and, and that's kind of a little bit more about, you know, the company itself. But uh, what led up to this, I guess, moment in my life that got me to the point where I'm actually owning an advertising agency was a long time ago. <clears throat> um, you know, I, I got my degree in marketing and I was also, uh, you know, right as I graduated from, uh, you know, college, I was graduated right in 2008, right during the time of the Great Recession. And during the Great Recession, of course, you know, I, it was, I was lucky to even find a professional sales job at the time. But, you know, luckily I had quite a bit of experience and I also, you know, did some uh, collegiate sales competition type stuff in college. And uh, over the course of a couple of years, you know, ended up absolutely hating working for the man, tried to start flipping houses, lost about 40 grand of money in the process, uh, but eventually figured it out. And uh, over time, I, uh, through multiple different businesses, eventually led towards this. And so I, I realized that I have a knack for, I kind of feel like a lot of the stuff that I had done in the past kind of, you know, um, added on top of each other to eventually lead me towards this path of, of advertising for clients. And, uh, and I love what I do. So it's, it's, it's good stuff. It's funny, isn't it? I think sometimes the universe punishes you for trying to, for the wrong choices, right? So it's like, I'm not going to let you keep doing what you're going to do. I'm going to keep punishing you. <laughs> Give it up. <laughs> that's a funny way of changing what you think is going to happen in your life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If, yeah. Um, someone said that I was um, doing what I do 20 years ago, I would have thought you're crazy. Cause um, you know, it's like, yeah. Funny how one thing, one little choice leads to something bigger and then something bigger and then suddenly you realize, hang on a minute, what happened there? But I always kind of feel too, you know, like if you ever try to steer your life in a direction where you think it's going to end up at some sort of an outcome at some point in the future, you're mm -hmm. almost always wrong. I mean, yeah. pretty much the 99% of the time, you might go down a path and then say, wait a minute, maybe I'll get my MBA, maybe I'll start a business, which is something I actually was thinking about at one point too. And then of course, you know, you know, I'm starting this business and it goes in a completely different direction. But I also feel like you would never end up being where you are today had it not been for all that other stuff you dealt with in the past, both mm -hmm. good and bad. Mm -hmm. So the failures and the successes are both important. In fact, I think the failures are far more important because I learned a lot more from my failures than I did from my successes. Otherwise, I wouldn't be where I'm at today if I didn't fail as much as I did in the past, right? Yeah, and I think um, one of the things about entrepreneurship is the ability to be able to fail and take it on the chin and move on. <laughs> you know, yeah, like it's not easy. I mean, you kind of learn how to fail a lot, you know, because I mean, I think a lot of reasons why a lot of entrepreneurs, you know, because here's the thing. 
there, being an entrepreneur is sexy, right? I mean, there's so many people out there that are like, look, you know, I, I can't rely upon a job. I can't rely on a pension. I, you know, I don't want to, I'm, I'm sick and tired of Jim Bob getting promotions instead of me. So a lot of these folks really get entertained with the idea. And it seems very attractive and sexy to actually have your own business. I'm the, I'm the laptop, you know, warrior, laptop lifestyle, doing, working wherever I want to in the world. Well, there's pros and cons to everything, of course, right? And, and the thing is, the grass is always greener and you really truly have to genuinely have a fantastic product and absolutely love what you, what you do. Otherwise, that whole laptop, laptop lifestyle thing can end up being like a much bigger prison for yourself than actually working a nine to five with stability. And, yeah. and there's, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of people who love the idea of being an entrepreneur, but also they just are absolutely terrified about failing. And mm -hmm. once they get one little failure, it just completely discourages them. They start to tell themselves, hey, you know what? Maybe I'm just not meant for this. You mm -hmm. know what? Maybe I should be doing this. Maybe this is the universe's way of telling me that I, I need to be doing this other thing instead. Yeah. And they go down that path and never realize their potential because of it, you know? That's right, exactly. And I think it's kind of a little bit of a segue into ads and stuff like that because, I mean, a lot of people, including myself, you know, you run Facebook ads, you get, you know, you handed on a plate because it doesn't work. Yeah. And, and then you give up, right? So a lot of people tried ads and gave up. So... And I think that's part of the problem is, is that without some sort of experience in doing it and basically having lots of failures, and it's obviously where you probably come from, where you've done a lot on yourself. Yeah. Well, failures, you actually realize what works and what doesn't. And straight away out of the gate, you can go, oh, that's not going to work. Yeah. Well, for sure. No, in fact, I'm going to, I will tell you this. Is it easy to make a Facebook ad? Yeah. Facebook makes it very easy. You can easily click the boost button if you wanted to, and you're technically running a Facebook ad. But now, is it easy to create a profitable, business a Facebook campaign, not necessarily, unless you know a lot of the ins and outs that, that you deal with just truly spending every single day in ads manager building upon that mastery. And I still, to this day, there's new stuff that comes out all the time. Like just yeah. recently, I'm playing around in Facebook events manager where I can actually create different event codes for certain either button clicks or URLs. Whereas before I had to use Google tag manager to be able to put my, my base pixel in there and then manually put JavaScript in certain pieces or have, you know, someone else help me with Google tag manager. Cause I'm not an expert at that sort of stuff yeah. anymore, you know? Uh, and there's new products all the time. Like for example, mm -hmm. Facebook attribution just came out where you can actually see multi-touch attribution. You can see how Facebook, uh, is in relation to Google AdWords, SEO, and, and also show you your entire marketing mix, whether if you want to run models off of, uh, you know, even touch, if you want to run models off of last touch, first touch, you can go up to 90 days now. There's a lot of new, uh, new tools that Facebook rolls out to people on a regular basis to make our lives easier. But also, if you're not staying on top of it, like I do every single day, again, I still learn new stuff. And, I, and this is the one thing I do. I don't do Google AdWords. I do one thing because I want to focus on being one thing very, very well or the best yeah. of one thing. Yeah. And in order to do that, you know, uh, you really do need to spend the time and make, you know, a lot of mistakes. So going back to failure before, um, you know, with some of the auto dealers I work with, just one auto dealer last year alone, um, I, I made, I think, well over 1,100 different ad sets at different ad tests throughout the entire year. Um, and I used something called Lafayette Events to measure, you know, whether or not someone walked in or they, you know, they bought a vehicle within 28 days of seeing or clicking on any of my specific ads. And I'll tell you that in my experience, you know, talking about failure and embracing it like we did earlier, um, about somewhere between 85 to 95% of my ads are not profitable. But that 5 to 10% that are can, and if you, if you hone in on that strategy, build off of it, understand why you did it, why certain ads and certain messaging frameworks were able to produce that outcome of $10 in profit for every $1 in, and, you know, ad spend, you can, you can predictably start to do that over time. And so, you know, that's one thing that I learned how to do with auto dealers after making 1100 ads 
you know, we still eventually, we still eventually ended up with, I think it was an 11 to one return on ad spend on profit, not on revenue. Um, the actual revenue with auto dealers is like 30 times more than that. Cause cause the car is expensive. Oh, okay. but, <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, so I mean, there's stuff like that, that of course, you know, it takes a lot of time. You have to fail a lot. You have to embrace that, that, that process of testing, testing, testing nonstop and just know that, look, you know, you might not find the answer right now, but eventually if you keep plugging away, you do. So if someone did basically want to go and have a go at that ad manager themselves and try and do it right. Yeah. Um, what would your advice be for the start? Like someone who's never had either and had no success with it, what would be a simple kind of campaign to run? Sure. So things kicked on at least to get a start point to see if it even works for them. Cause a lot of, I think yeah. some industries it's tougher to get, you know, sales and others, you know, particularly yeah. the business side of it. I think find it much harder. Yeah. B2B is a totally different beast. So I'll tell you that, most of the time, the biggest problem that I tend to see with a lot of businesses who want to start running Facebook ads is they start first with a tactic. Like they'll say, hey, I want to run a campaign mm-hmm. rather than taking a step back and saying, what, what am I really, what is my goal here? Like, what am I actually trying to accomplish? And so I'm a little bit different compared to a lot of other ad agencies because I view advertising as a component of, of an overall profitable you know, business model as far as making advertising work for you on a consistent, scalable basis. But as it relates to if you're trying to do this on your own, you need to first take a step back and say, what is my, what is the outcome that I find to be acceptable? Like, am I trying to find new people to walk into my business? Am I trying to do this? What is my average lifetime value? Can I afford to pay more to acquire a customer because I've got a significantly more robust average lifetime value than others. Therefore I can afford to, to, you know, pay a higher cost per acquisition if I need to and still be profitable in the end. Um, And so starting first, you know, taking a step back and rather than saying, I'm just going to start to run some campaigns on Facebook. The first thing I would have anyone do if even if, they're working with an agency or not working with an agency, the first thing you want to understand is what am I actually trying to accomplish here? Start mm-hmm. first with a goal. And then once you understand that goal, if you're saying, I want to increase my business by 20% per year, you've got to reverse engineer the funnel to, and, and using you know, numbers to estimate exactly what you need to do in order to reach that desired outcome of X, Y, Z. So if you want to grow 20% year over year and that equals $200,000 in additional business, then you have to reverse engineer and figure out, okay, well, if, what am I willing to pay to acquire that? Am I okay with a three to one return on ad spend? If that's the case, you make some simple assumptions from there and then you create the campaign once you've gone through that entire process process of really truly understanding your key performance indicators, what you're trying to accomplish and, and your goals about going to do something like that. And then when it comes to the tactics of Facebook ads, that's something that you can kind of plug and play. I mean, there's so many different nuances and intricacies. If you want to keep it simple and basic, it's very easy to do. If you want to create 1100 different ad sets in a year, like I did to (laughs) test everything from a granular perspective to really know what's working and what's not, you can do that too, but you don't have to go that crazy. The first thing I would recommend though, for anyone who's listening is, is you really need to really truly understand what are you trying to accomplish here and then work backwards and figure out how you can be able to get that desired end outcome in a way that's still profitable from a return on ad spend perspective. And I think the interesting thing with Facebook is that if, if you tell Facebook what you're trying to get, which is really the question they ask up front, is you know whether you want a conversion or whether you want to um, get video views, whatever you want to do, that's yeah. a very important choice because at the end of the day, Facebook's then going to think about the best way to get that and start learning. You know, oh, yeah. Well, I'll add on that too. Yeah, I'll add on that. Facebook has 17,000 different data points that they track on us at every single second of every single day for every single user who's using that platform. 17,000 different data points. They track your IP address. They know what kind of websites you've been to. They can predict behavior. So like, for example, you know, it was famous. Facebook was famously able to predict uh, a, a woman who was actually pregnant 
didn't know she was pregnant at the time, but started serving her ads at one point in the past. And it was freakishly accurate because of behavior. They started to analyze behavior of other people who were also subconsciously she was probably doing things that she had no idea. And that that's the funny thing too. Like, you know, there's a lot of people out there with tinfoil hats to start to say that Facebook is listening to our conversations and then they're serving ads to us later on. Uh, now I'm not I'm not, I know Alexa listens to us even when we're not aware of it, you know, to enhance their 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 whole speech algorithm and everything. But realistically, Facebook is significantly more intelligent than you would ever imagine it to be in the first place. So uh, t starting first with the correct objective is totally true. I mean, if you're trying to create a video views campaign, but you don't care about that video creating an engagement, a like, a share, or a comment, or also potentially driving traffic to a website to actually create a conversion at some point, then yeah, you know, you, you want to make sure you start with the right objective. But for, you know, to, going back to that, that element of 17,000 different data points, they know people who are likely to watch more video than others. So when you create bidding of through play versus three second video views, for example, mm -hmm. you're going to find more people who are going to watch at least the whole video or at least 15 contiguous seconds, for example, you know, mm -hmm. or when it comes to a conversion campaign. So something that I do that also usually over time starts to decrease my cost per lead and also increase the quality of leads is by running conversion campaigns based off of something like a lead or a purchase event code. Um, so the reason why I do that is because what Facebook will do, let's say, for example, you're driving traffic to a, a website or a landing page and your goal is to get leads of some sort. So if you track all the people who get to that thank you page and you have that pixel on that thank you page, yeah. then every time that Facebook pixel gets hit by a, by a unique user on Facebook, what it will do is Facebook will look at all those 17,000 different data points on that individual. And then if you've got, let's say a dozen, two dozen, three dozen people who've gone to that thank you page, Facebook has a lot of data. Okay. Is there similarities between all these three dozen different people between all the 17,000 different data points. We're going to turn them into an algorithm. And then what we're going to do is we're going to find more people that match that algorithm on the platform. And you can get away from getting really, really crazy targeting when you do that because mm -hmm. Facebook's targeting is going to be better than what you think you can produce. Exactly. So, so Facebook is incredibly intelligent. I mean, the algorithms that they develop on us because of how much they know about us um, mm -hmm. is, is uncanny. And especially, you know, when you think about how interesting and almost scary and freaky in some ways, and also kind of interesting too, about the fact that Facebook can predict someone who's pregnant before they can, mm. now that's, that, that's a fascinating, uh, you know, uh, outcome. <laughs> you, can imagine, you can imagine once, once AI really takes off in about, you know, the next five to 10 years, you know, what Facebook's going to be like then. With, with AI? AI? Yeah, I know they're were. already using they're already using machine learning and AI right now. Yeah. They're just using it for very limited kind of you know um, scenarios, yeah. but but they're doing it right now to begin with. And you know the thing is, you know there's some individuals like Elon Musk. Elon Musk is saying, hey, it's going to turn into Terminator if, if AI gets loose. And you know I think th there's more fear and uncertainty about not knowing exactly what's going to happen because we've never really had a case study before where where there is you know, a machine that has sentient feelings and emotions and can actually have a, a normal conversation. Mm. Uh, that's, that's frightening to many people. But mm. if you use it for, you know, a business case kind of perspective, like AI as a service versus AI as an enemy, um, you, you can really kind of find a lot of interesting outcomes, you know, because of, of how smart these algorithms really are. And Facebook really harnesses a lot of that sort of stuff. It's interesting. I've read, I've read um, a couple of books in the moment. One was the brief history of, of yesterday, or, you know, the brief, brief history of the world, it's called. And then there's one, uh, the brief history of uh, the future. Yeah. And one of the fun and interesting things is until something happens, we don't really know. So right. we look back in history and go, oh, that's, that's when the internet started. You know, you can look back and see. Yeah. The problem is in, in 100 years' time, no one remembers. So right. the difference between now and, say, 100 years ago was the storage of information. Right. All the information was never stored, it was just passed on. So now we're actually got this, you know, it's on, you know, basically you can Google it. You know, a right. hundred years ago, you couldn't Google it. And so the end oh, of the day, yeah. well, 
15 years ago, you couldn't accurately Google stuff. I mean, back in 2004, you couldn't, you know, it's, it's interesting how, you know, I used to be in the wireless world. And so I worked, you know, for, I worked with large companies. I worked with uh, Microsoft Windows Mobile back when they were, you know, basically the main smartphone at the time, except for the BlackBerry RIM devices and whatnot. I had a BlackBerry back then, it was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, or like a Palm Pilot or Palm Tree yeah. device. I, I remember all those. Uh, and I, I, was, I was in that world at the time. And it's fascinating now when you look at what our phones do now versus what those, those devices did even back as far as 2006. Mm-hmm. It is a world of difference by being able to truly tap into information at your fingertips. And it's interesting when you look at just what's happened in the last 15 years on mm-hmm. mobile devices specifically. I mean, back in 2004, I had a color flip phone with a camera and I was cool in high school because I'm the only kid that had a color flip phone and camera. And that was 2004, you know, I graduated oh, college wow. high school in 2004. And so when you look at now, 15 years later, what we can do with our devices, imagine what it's going to be like 15 to 20 years from now. Crazy uh, not even do it, but you still have a decent phone call though, can you? <laughs> you, know, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's really funny too because a lot of people, you know, I'm a millennial and a lot of people who are millennials, uh, if you ever try to call, if I ever try to call any of my friends, they look at their device like, why is this <laughs> You not know that I only respond over text messages and I'm like old school because I get so many text messages and Facebook messages. I don't really, I don't even listen to that stuff anymore. I'm like, just call me. I mean, we use your phone as an actual phone here guys, you know, but I embrace that that concept because I hate, I hate the phone because when I was early in my career, I had a lot of phone calls to deal with. Yeah. I hate the phone. So really embrace that technology, not picking the phone up. So when anyone says, Oh, well, can I call you a girl where you can try, but you won't get through because my phone's on silent. They laugh. (laughs) <laughs> and then they try and call me and they realize that they're not getting through right because yeah. i said oh, did you call me because my phone's so dumbed down now i actually don't even get don't even get told i've had a call now virtually it doesn't even pop up so calls coming through oh wow that's so basic. i have no idea and it's like well and they kind of think oh you must be kidding you're gonna pick the phone i'm not i'm not gonna pick the phone up because they yeah. can be a big distraction um yeah. mind you, everything else on that phone can be a huge distraction as well so i think at the end of the day it's like you know it's dangerous that's really- you know, it's really funny. I mean, there's a big push and a big movement towards individuals, uh, you know, kind of getting away from more human interaction. I mean, think about it. Like, you know, uh, and I, I buy everything on Amazon. You know, I get my groceries delivered now because I hate dealing Pretty amazing. Yeah, I was in the States and so I thought, wow, this is like, you can see it real time. So much same day stuff. stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, you can get stuff same day. I mean, I order my stuff on, on Safeway.com and I get my groceries same day if I wanted to. And so, you know, it's it's interesting how... The, the entire experience for the most part has been to get people away from actual human connection and instead uh, move towards more, more, you know, digital types of, you know, non-committal kinds of communication. Like, Hey, if I'm going to buy a car, I don't want to have to go in and actually buy a car. There was a big push uh, a couple of years ago towards chatbots on Facebook and everyone was talking about how chatbots were going to completely just change the game. And granted in many ways, they're great, but uh, you know, one, one, uh, one group that I went to traffic, conversion summit over for digital marketer um when i listened to the keynote from ryan dice ryan dice was talking about how you know you, there, there's a there's a push towards building community and human connection and that's something that a lot of you know a lot of people look you can try to you can try to replace parts of your funnel process with chatbots but if you try to replace your entire discussion points with chatbots it's not something you can't replace that human connection you can't replace that that feeling of building community with others and so i think there's going to be a certain point where look there's a lot of push towards automation in many different ways but i also think that there's a lot of individuals who are starting to realize or businesses are starting to realize that you can't replace everything with automation you can't replace everything with chatbots and, and automated systems mm-hmm. at some point in some scenarios you really do need to have that human connection with people to really be able to nurture and build brand on that you know you get people come to you like i've had with me where they come to you and want to create an automated business and ask yeah. customers to make money 
and they yeah. think that's the internet, right? And, and the right. reality is, is that at some point they've got to talk to the lead and yeah. scenarios where we've done the advertising and marketing for clients and then they won't talk to the client, the prospect, they screw that up. Yeah. Remember, <laughs> like, you know, like they're almost like they think, oh, well, now you're running my advertising, that ads marketing is going to happen automatically, I'm just going to make sales and have to do anything. And that's not you know, really the reason to yeah. get in the first place. <laughs> yeah, that would, that would be such an interesting concept. You know, for someone, like, for example, in my world, for someone who deals with, with advertising retainers on monthly retainers and such, you know, some, some retainers can be thousands upon thousands of dollars, depends on the client and stuff. And it would blow my mind if someone could actually do that at scale, where they were able to automate everything and never talk to a single person at any point, at any, mm-hmm. at any point in the future whatsoever. And instead say, look, you want to buy from me, you go to my checkout cart, put out five grand into this with your credit card. You never talk <laughs> to me. Right? <laughs> Good luck. It's kind of like, look, you know, you can automate a lot of things with an auto buying process. You know, mm-hmm. most people, like I said, they absolutely hate buying cars and you know, yeah, sure. You can, and part of the reason why is because they're sick and tired of pushy salespeople. You know, mm-hmm. I, I come from a sales background and I hate salespeople too. So I get it, you know, and, and especially when people are trying to push their agenda upon you. But I think we're going to see a big resurgence towards more consultative selling rather than pushing, pushing and yeah. going for the close and hearing no seven times until you actually, you know, leave the prospect alone. And then you all, no, people hate being sold. They, they do, but they, what they love, like being sold. <laughs> they love being listened to and they love actually having their needs met. And I think we're going to start to see that, you know, again, I think that's the reason why people really like chat. They don't want to talk to someone because they're always dealing with someone who has their own independent uh, needs and wants, and they're going to shift that direction of that conversation based off of what they want rather than what you, the customer, wants. And so, you know, there, there's a there's a concept within a, a group called StoryBrand, uh, and what I really like about StoryBrand is that they really cement and and this is great for advertising too when it comes to you know uh, how you create your copy for your your ad campaigns, how you treat the customer journey and the customer lifecycle, but. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting, you know, they, they made a, an analogy. Look, when you walk into a, an auto dealer's sales office and you walk in and the first thing that you see sitting on top of their desk is about 50 different awards sitting in front of them. Mm-hmm. And so you're walking into this room and you're sitting down in front of this individual who clearly is, is, is you know, apparently God's gift. <laughs> and yeah. you're sitting there like, oh man, I'm, <laughs> oh, they're going to take, oh, oh man, I don't know about this. I'm starting to feel like maybe I need to get out of this room, you know? So, so the thing is, you know, a lot of businesses and a lot of people I think are very guilty of making them the hero in the journey when actually your customer is the hero, not you, not the business. They're the hero. And your goal, your guide is to merely, or your goal is to merely, you know, guide them along the path towards a, a suitable solution for whatever sort of problems that are plaguing them, you know? And so if you really treat your customers as if they are the hero, not you, not the business, you might think to yourself, hey, I've got the greatest solution to X, Y, Z, and therefore I need to sell everyone my, my particular solution. No, you turn your customers into the hero and you'll sell a lot more. It's actually, it's interesting because a lot of it, I think, come back to the customer experience, right? Because, mm-hmm. and, and people pay for experiences more than they pay for anything else. Absolutely. And, when, when I go and buy a BMW, for example, they've got that thing down pat, like that, that whole business, that process, they've got it, they've got their own coffee shop, right? Mm-hmm. They've got everything set up that the way they move you around, it's almost like it's a, a theater, right? They've set oh yeah. Up. It's an experience, you know, yeah, it's an experience it, it, to go through and you talk to different people and it's almost like you're going through this journey as if you started the, they feel like you've gone through an entire journey by the time you get to the end of that. Mm-hmm. And that they know that they know that, and they I think they even their tagline something about experience. Yeah. So when you think about it, when you look at that as a boilerplate, think oh, okay, you know, right back at the ad stage, thinking mm-hmm. about what the customer's experience is going to be like. Yeah. 
you're going to make it hard for them to do business with, with you through that process because you thought you were going to automate it and you weren't going to do anything. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, what's funny too, you know, a, a lot of, a lot of businesses and a lot of philosophies that are in my opinion, incorrect, at least in many different scenarios they are incorrect. I mean, in some cases they make a lot of sense. A lot of people are really focusing on trying to speed up the customer journey or speed up the transaction, you know, scenarios so that you can get to yes faster, for example. And that's why they do a lot of things like building chatbots and building automated systems and all this sort of stuff. But it's interesting when, when you really think about it, you know, us, us individuals are subjected to up to 5,000 different marketing messages every single day. Um, and I think it's close to that. I was reading that in Adweek. Um, there's a couple of the sources also back that up, but 5,000 different messages. And when you look at online advertising, you know, every single person who, who sees a Facebook ad in their feed is scrolling through and they see a bunch of other messages as well. They'll see a bunch of sponsored posts that are trying to grab their attention. And that's on top of everything they see in the real world, on top of all the pop-ups they see when they browse the internet or when they're on their phone, they're going through a messenger and they're seeing ads in messenger now too. So everyone, you see 5,000 different messages. And because of that, a, you know, a lot of the, 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 the leads nowadays or a lot of the individuals who go through this process because you're just you see so much they become distracted they become uh, they, they, they think about you less and less because they're so used to going a million miles a minute when you've got information at your fingertips that a lot of the businesses who instead of focusing on trying to speed everything up and try to speed that process up and I want to get to yes and I want to get your money faster and I'm gonna do all this stuff those businesses that focus on the experiment, the experience, just like you mentioned, that actually focus on slowing down the conversation so that they can actually be able to, to get their message across to you in a way that you listen to. If you're used to listening to things a million miles a second, and you're used to seeing all this information a million miles a second, and all these advertising messages, 5,000 a day, a million miles a second, those who slow down and actually really focus on that interaction between the business and that consumer and treats them as if they're the hero. Those are the ones that actually are winning in a very distracted, uh, you know, digital advertising world nowadays. And I think um, I was just actually looking at Marvel and the new movie coming out. And, mm -hmm. and the thing is that you can see that they are very much into that. Like if you look at customer experience, mm -hmm. they basically keep it secret because they don't want people to know what's going to happen. And that lead up that advertising, the build up to it. Yeah. It is something that's sort of building anticipation. They're taking it. They're playing the slow game there. You realize they, they planned out. Remember when, when they talked about the, the whole, you know, Marvel saga, there was what three different, uh, I think there was three different phases, distinct phases to the Marvel movies and they mapped the stuff out back in 2004. So you might think now is like, look, if you want to talk about playing the slow game, we're yeah. talking about, they've made what 15 to 20 different movies, movies over the last 14 yeah. to 15 years to lead to, this movie that we're about to see and they care about the experience and they care about the journey. And like, yeah, you know, like that's a 15 year sales cycle to get to this final, you know, the climax yeah. of the entire saga. Right. And they're so, going to make a lot of sales of the last movie because now they've kind of indicated it's the last one. So people right. are going to watch it because it's a, it's a moment in time. It's an experience. Right. Uh, well, if people really thought that the last Avengers movie was the last one. That's a very depressing ending for a lot yeah, of people. It was the last one, right? <laughs> really builds them up. But I mean, you look at this like the hero's journey, right? It's like whole oh, yeah. what they're doing there. But I mean, yeah, I think at the end of the day, I was actually watching a, an interview with the, with all the directors that was in the yeah. last one, the Infinity Wars on a bonus thing. And they're talking about the fact that a lot of the stuff that they did in different movies, they didn't plan some of that out. So what would happen is someone would finish one of the movies because they're all individual directors and they also go back to the main guys that uh, right. do it. But the reality is some of the things that happened dovetailed automatically almost like by accident. Mm. And so mm. they picked up on things and said, okay, great. Then you finish there. We'll pick up from here. So it's yeah. almost like it's, 
it's it's an interactive football game where they're actually passing the ball around. They know mm. where they're going, but they don't they have a plan, but they don't quite know what's going to happen. So yeah, these all these seven or eight directors got together and said, you know, we kind of just winged it along the way and did whatever we wanted to do, make our own movies. But at the end of the day, it ended up being well. They still um, had an overarching plan, though, right? And that's oh, yeah, they, yeah. they had it on the wall. Apparently, if you you look back, I forget where it was. One of the movies that they did where very early on they showed mm-hmm. a picture of something on there that actually mm-hmm. is really relates to the end game. So they actually had oh, them, really? I think, mapped out from the original picture on the screen. Yeah. Where they Which was, I think, Iron Man, I think was the first one. one. So, so the reality yeah. is they had mapped it all out in theory, but yeah. they fiddled around with it. But you know, I think there's a lot to be learnt from that whole process of building the arc and oh, yeah. low rather than try to just... Ins- and I mean, the Facebook ad manager that I spoke to me once said to me, yeah. um, you really have to warm your audience up first. You really have to get them to to basically start knowing who you are first before you start trying to just sell to them because it's almost like going to someone like if you can go up yeah. the street and do it if you can walk up to somebody in the street and do this yeah chances are to work on facebook right and it doesn't work because you walk the streets yeah. well, you're talking about the no like trust framework which you know yeah. you can also distinctly just define as top of funnel middle of funnel bottom of funnel you know and in some scenarios you can run with a strong offer to kind of you know compress that that from top of funnel to bottom of funnel just go straight to bottom of funnel if it's a good offer and you know the audience is going to already buy the vehicle you know or or whatever uh because there's already brand equity you don't have to get people to know you they already know who you are you don't necessarily have to even to like you because they already like your product that's a totally different scenario but but going back to like what we're talking about earlier you know i guess that's kind of a nice uh a, a nice wrapping up point to a certain to a certain extent because you know what we just talked about specifically as it relates to the story arc as it relates to the overall plan as it relates to uh you know you can't it took 15 years to get that sort of stuff done. So going back to initially what we talked about, you know, when it comes to starting a campaign, the reason why the Marvel s- stories are doing so well is because they planned out, they, they had the desired outcome 15 years ago. They knew exactly where they were going. They knew exactly what they were trying to accomplish in this entire story. There's built-in retention for every single step, every movie. Once you invest in the first movie, you're going to invest for the rest of them. You're, you're, you're hooked, right? And so it's, there's built-in retention. There's an overarching plan that took 15 years to accomplish, and they knew exactly where they were. They knew exactly what the, what they were looking for as far as an outcome was concerned, and and they led towards that eventual you know climax. And so that's kind of the same scenario as it relates as it relates to starting Facebook campaigns. Now, granted, it's not going to take you 15 years to I get. That's a lot of money to spend. <laughs> yeah, you know, but 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 you do have to. You can't shortcut. I mean, so many people that I find are so impatient with the results. They say to themselves, hey, I'll test this for a month and see what happens. Well, mm-hmm. here's the thing. I might expose when I run ads for someone that there's all sorts of additional problems within the business that they didn't even know about. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a bunch of no-call, no-shows. Maybe their conversion rate is absolutely terrible because their salespeople need training. Maybe you know, you've got a receptionist or a front desk person who's not managing the CRM system accurately, or what they're doing is they're not following up with leads when they're supposed to, and they're saying that they are. So there's, there's all sorts, you know, Advertising can't fix a broken process. In fact, most yeah. of the time, advertising is going to cost more and mm-hmm. you're still going to have your broken processes in the end. You truly, in my opinion, actually, I know this to be true too, too. As a business, you truly need to be able to fix your inbound sales process before you actually start advertising. You need to have a plan of what you're trying to accomplish before you start advertising. So there's all these things. It's not to fix a slow sales situation. No. Facebook advertising, it's not, it is not a magic weapon. It's not mm-hmm. a magic bullet. You know, and, and I see this quite a bit with a lot of my clients. I'm very picky with who I choose to take on, you know, for a reason. But, but when you look at, you know, clients like, you know, whether they're auto dealers who they're con- you could send the same number of leads to certain auto dealers that you do for others and their return on ad spend is four times versus 10 to 12. And you're like, wait a minute, 
why is this the case? They're getting the same number of leads. They're getting all this sort of stuff. You know, the, the, all metrics are exactly the same. The cost per lead is roughly about the same. Why is it that they're making so much more? And it's because there's, there's, there's all these inefficiencies in that business. Or like, for example, chiropractors or dentists, you know, uh, you can give the same number of leads, but it's our job as advertisers to not just advertise for people. It's to focus on the profit and the outcome of growth of, of really, that's what advertising is supposed to do. And mm -hmm. so when you come across a scenario where, you know, and it happens every time, there's always process and sales oriented issues and inefficiencies in the business mm -hmm. that is, that is not very productive towards the eventual outcome of actually making more money for every dollar you put into it. And I, you know, I made the decision, you know, a couple of years ago to not necessarily focus hundred percent on advertising, but instead, you know, I'm very good at advertising. I also focus on helping with the broken sales processes because that has an equal amount of effect, negative or positive towards, towards campaign, you know, return on investment as much as keeping the cost per lead as low as humanly possible or cost per outcome or purchase or whatever. So all these things have to kind of go, it, it's like a, they have to be in harmony with each other. And when you've got advertising coming in, you know, coming in just super hot and your business is not ready to equip that sort of stuff, it's always going to create more problems. And so you really truly need to look at from a holistic perspective, you know, taking that step back, looking at the overarching 15 year plan, just like Marvel did, making sure you have every single step of the process going towards that eventual outcome, eliminating inefficiencies and all that sort of stuff. If you don't do that, I don't care what kind of advertising you do, you're still going to burn money and you're not going to see the outcome you're looking for. And that's interesting because one of the things that um, you only focus on, which I was read about, was the cost per acquisition, which is yes. something that, that a lot of people call talk about cost per lead. Yeah. Um, which is a bit, I probably agree, you can probably explain a bit more about it, but I think cost per lead can be dangerous because it doesn't mean you've made a sale, it just costs you someone to talk to someone who may not even be <laughs> worthwhile talking to in the first place. So, 1000% yes. And that that's, you know, there's so many different advertisers now that are like, hey, look how many leads I got at this price. Okay, well, what was the conversion rate? You know, how many of those leads actually converted to buyers? How many of those people came in for an appointment of some sort or whatever your goal was, you know? Uh, and and if, if your advertising campaigns are not leading towards the, the eventual cost per acquisition outcome of what you're primarily focusing on, that is the, the most... Uh, the, the most ultimate indicator of whether or not you are going to be profitable with your campaigns. And so you, there, there's so many advertisers out there that just peddle cheap leads. And last time I checked, you know, if I ever call my mortgage company up and ask them if I can pay my mortgage note with leads, <laughs> you know, <laughs> go, what's that? <laughs> so if I can't pay my mortgage with leads, then and I need to focus on money and profit for paying my mortgage. Then me as an advertiser, I don't care about leads. I care about, you know, money and profit. And are you making more money by working with me versus others? And, and that's why, you know, take talking about what I was talking about a second ago, it's so important to really look at advertising as, as a, from a holistic perspective rather than a tactic, rather than saying, hey, I'm going to start a Facebook campaign. What should I do first? We'll take a step back and don't start that campaign yet because you're going to burn money. You're going to say Facebook advertising doesn't work. You're going to say Facebook leads are garbage, which they're not. They're, there's over two to three billion people in the entire world on Facebook. So if that's the case, what you're saying is 50% of the world is pretty much garbage, which is not true. You know, um, something wrong with your product because you can't sell it, right? <laughs> or there's something wrong with your product. There's something wrong with your offering. There's something wrong with your copy. There's something wrong with your value ladder. Your average lifetime value isn't in alignment with the reality. Your cost per acquisition, your systems are broken. There's so much mm -hmm. that goes into ensuring that return on investment works that I don't focus on cost per lead. Because when you think about it from this perspective, you can give a hundred leads to two different businesses. One business that actually has really good processes and one that doesn't. And those hundred leads, rather than 50% of people coming in from those leads, you might see 25%. And already right off the bat, you're playing with a handicap. And then out of those, you know, 50% that do come in on one side, you know, let's say for example, if you're great at, at, your, at converting your audience into paying customers or whatever, then you might see like 40 to 50% of those people 
those, you know, that's 25 people roughly that are going to actually buy versus if you're not very good at that, you might only see like a, let's say 25% conversion rate. So now again, the return on investment actually has, and I did this math one time, um, as it relates to what if I, what if I decreased my cost per lead by 50% and didn't change a single thing with, with, you know, the, the, uh, the appointment scheduling rate, uh, the conversion rate, the retention rate, uh, the average lifetime value, improving the average lifetime value by being good, being better at having a better customer experience for, for your customers and ensuring that when they think about you, they want to come back to you to buy more from you in the future because they know that, that they're going to, that they trust your brand and they know what they're going to, you know, get as a result of working with you. All that stuff, it goes hand in hand with each other. And it's not just, you know, individual silos. It's really part of the entire marketing wheel that you need to focus on. But if you focus primarily just on, you know, cost per lead, you know, sorry, going back to what I was saying earlier, if you, if, you know, if you decrease the cost per lead, it can help you improve your, your return on investment by a, a marginal amount. If you didn't even improve your cost per lead at all, but you improve your appointment scheduling rate, your, your decrease your no call, no show rate, improve your, uh, your closing rate, and then also, you know, improve your, your average lifetime value. That has a significantly higher impact on, on return on investment then decreasing your cost per lead by 50%. So don't focus on cheap leads. In fact, there's a lot of scenarios with clients where I was willing to pay more for a lead because they were able to convert a higher percentage of them and they eventually, the cost per acquisition was in alignment with what they needed to see. And so it was significantly more profitable. You might think, hey, if I'm getting nothing but cheap leads and I can't make this work, maybe you should start being willing to pay a little bit more for a lead, add a little bit of friction to the process. And if you convert more of those people at scale, then that's far more profitable than just running a bunch of cheap leads. So profit's really the only thing that matters. You know, making sure that you're getting margin, your, your cost per acquisition, cost per lead. I'm telling you right now, whoever's listening to this, stop focusing on cost per lead. Cost per lead does not matter anywhere near as much as cost per acquisition. And you really need to focus on that as your only, only source of gauging whether or not your campaigns are successful. So if there's one thing that I hope anyone listens to when they hear this is, hey, cost per acquisition matters. And that also means that, hey, if I need to pay more per lead because it's going to produce a higher outcome because there's going to be a higher percentage of those people that will convert or something else, then be willing to do that. Because if you are going to be stuck in the scenario of I'm going to want a million leads at a cheap price, but I can't convert them, why does it matter? Who cares? You're producing work literally for not a single ounce of benefit except for just keeping yourself busy and unprofitable. Yeah. And, and keeping Facebook and, and keeping their share price up. <laughs> You're just spending money yeah. on yeah, you're just going to help Mark Zuckerberg buy more houses, right? I mean, <laughs> the guy's already worth a bunch of money. Why don't you make the money for yourself? Of course, you know. Apparently, only gets paid, apparently pays $1 or something a year in salary or something. All the rest comes out from side benefits. But it's like, yeah. Yeah, that's thing it. but um, actually, very interesting because one of the things that I think a lot of businesses don't think about is that they don't track the, initial, the end result. Mm -hmm. So what happens is, and a long, long time ago when, when there was very little computerization around, one of the things that I did, which made a, made a huge difference. And that was we, we put down, a, had a campaign worksheet and we wrote down the campaign. So let's say it's a Facebook campaign or perhaps back then it was a Yellow Pages campaign, whatever. Yeah. And we'd write down how much it cost us to do this campaign, how many, and then we'd have a section for the sales. Mm -hmm. And then we'd look at return on investment. And we look at the percentages along the way through. So how many leads did we get? What was the conversion rate for, to, to a sale? and get yeah. numbers and then at the bottom said was this a good campaign or a bad campaign yeah and simply by doing that we could double the results of a business's marketing because most people don't look at the bottom line and what happens at the end they look at the start look how much money they spend advertising more often than not they have no way of tracking that 
Mm-hmm. One of the days I don't really track their sale. And then I asked the question, the key customer question was, where did you hear about us? Yeah. Because often in, in nowadays, it's a lot easier to track. Back then, someone would just come off the street and go, I'm here to buy something. And you go, where'd you hear about us? Oh, yeah, the pages and you write it down. Right. I think by finding out that, asking that quick key question, where did you hear about us? And to this day, I still do it automatically. And, I mean, and we don't really, and to a degree, we don't track it like we used to either. But the reality yeah. is, is that most people don't do that. They don't ask the customer whether they hear about you to make sure that, okay, I'll write that person down on that, on that sheet to see what's the net result. Well, you know, the other thing too, it's a lot easier to track. Yeah. Well, the other thing too is, is a lot of business owners, not only do they not track that outcome, but also they don't really truly understand um, real true attribution. You know, um, they, they will instead, let's say for example, you know, you run a, a, an ad in the newspaper and all of a sudden you get these people to come in. Your assumption is, Hey, the newspaper is what drove this traffic to my business because we saw this bump in sales and therefore mm-hmm. causation equals correlation. And I know that it had to have something to do with that. Mm-hmm. Well, here's the deal. Causation does not equal correlation, you know, yep. um, in most, in most buying, uh, buying, you know, cycles, th- there is multiple touch points, sometimes mm-hmm. seven to up to 20 to 30 or 40 different touch points before they finally make a decision. And yeah. so when you, when you look at one, one phase and you can't really say, Hey, maybe we got all these sales. Well, here's the thing. Maybe the majority of those people actually saw an ad 14 days ago mm-hmm. and the majority, it took 14 days for them to get nurtured enough because of retargeting, because of email, this, because of that. And that's the reason why they came in and actually bought that, that widget care. of some yeah, sort. And, and so you're going to incorrectly assume that it all came from that white, you know, that, that, that newspaper ad when the reality is it's actually the sum of the efforts of what's happened beforehand, but you don't see it because mm-hmm. you, in your mind, Hey, if it's now, it must mean now when the reality is no, it, it could be, to three months ago that they were starting to enter that buying cycle and then they were starting to think and then they started to think and they shopped the competition and they did this and they did that and they went online and found reviews and then they went to Yelp and they did this and then they went back to Facebook and they saw an ad from you. Oh, therefore it's Facebook. No, it's that initial touch point that has equal part of that too, you know? And so it's important to look at your funnel from as a layered approach. You need to look at what is really great at creating that top of funnel awareness? Maybe Facebook's not the right platform for top of funnel. Maybe YouTube ads are. Maybe, mm-hmm. you know, Snapchat ads. Maybe it's a good old-fashioned newspaper that creates that top of funnel awareness. You have to mm-hmm. look at, it at, your, at your funnel from a holistic perspective rather than just, you know, what, what drove that final outcome, you know? Um, but the other thing, too, is you have to look at things from, you know, middle funnel and, and bottom of funnel. What is the best approach? Facebook's not the best approach for all scenarios. I can tell you right now that there's a lot of situations I can think of off the top of my head um, where Facebook doesn't really work. And so Facebook might be great from components of that plan. But even though I only focus on Facebook, I never saw Facebook as the, the you know, Thor's hammer that's just, it, it's going to destroy all. No, it's, it, it's, it, it's got a place. It, it has a specific role. And is there a lot of power behind the platform? Absolutely. But is it the best scenario or best solution for all businesses and all scenarios, depending on what they're looking for? No. I mean, if, if you need to find someone that has some sort of intent, you know, or, or an event-based something or other that needs to happen. I mean, with, with Facebook, you know, your targeting is limited. Facebook might be great at, you know, predicting people are pregnant or whatever, but it's not necessarily great at knowing whether or not you've recently been in a car crash. And so if you are a, a personal injury attorney. Because Facebook also do not like you. One of the things they, they're very paranoid about is, is personal, uh, anything personal. So if you use the word you in ads. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You have to eliminate those words too. But like from, yeah. Anything from Exactly. That's hard because that's actually part of the demographic in some respect. Yeah, exactly. And and also, you know, part of the problem is if you're trying to find people who just recently were in a car crash, for example, you know, Facebook's, you could use targeting on Facebook, like 
you know, car accident or whiplash or, you know, a number of, of, of things. But the problem is you don't know if that was within the last couple of days or if it was three years ago that they became part of that audience. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, if it requires an event to have a certain something rather happen, Facebook is an awful platform to actually run any sort of ads to those individuals. Now, granted, if you started, for example, with a, with a YouTube or a Google AdWords campaign, there is searching on Google auto accident attorneys. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden and you, you pop up and they, they click on your landing page or they click on your website uh, you know, and, and they search that particular keyword or whatever. Then you can start with Google, for example, being top of funnel or YouTube. Yeah. And then you could retarget with Facebook once you know that they're already in the audience because I could have my Facebook pixel on that website. And the moment that someone gets to that site, I could say, ah, I know they've been in an auto accident. Now I can serve that audience mm-hmm. a bunch of auto accident stuff rather than trying to find people who are recently in an auto accident in the last two or three days that are contemplating looking for an auto accident attorney. It's mm-hmm. not great. It's not a great platform to do that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So you really have to be careful about not looking at Facebook <clears throat> and granted, you know, look, Facebook and Google dominate the online digital advertising world. They consume, I think what, 70, 70 to 80% of all mm-hmm. digital ad dollars spent online. Mm-hmm. So, you know, don't be romantic or married to one platform, even though I'm great at Facebook, I'm not great for every scenario. And that's why it's one of the situations where you need to really look at like saying, look, I need to leverage the strengths of everything. And I need to really, you know, t- again, take a step back, look at the goals. What am I trying to accomplish here? And if it makes more sense to start with a platform and then retarget with Facebook, so you don't have to spend all that money trying to find that audience like you would on Facebook, for example, then start there and, and don't start with Facebook. Yeah, true. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think it's probably a good, good, advice because at the end of the day people think that it cures it all but it doesn't and i think yeah mm-hmm. it's really about behaviors i think it's about custom behavior more than anything in facebook like if you can't oh, yeah. hold something around that then you're in trouble because um if, if you knew we were going to be pregnant well then obviously you can start serving up stuff about you know if you if you happen to be in that marketplace but if you don't it doesn't really matter right <laughs> so yeah, yeah. With you so yeah so one of the things that um we sort of took sort of um, talked about was you have a bold claim in your advertising or your mm-hmm. service. Tell me a little bit about that bold claim and how, what, what you do. So which, are you talking about one on my website? Yeah, so there was something there. I read something about how to bold claim and I, I can't remember what it was now. Oh, that um, might have been on my LinkedIn page. Yeah, I think it was on the LinkedIn page. It said something you had a bold claim and it's like confident in this, yeah, we go, confident in, the bold, in this bold promise. Well, bold promise, let's call it a bold promise rather than bold, bold claim. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sure, no worries. I just wanted to see what I. <laughs> well, you're promising, <laughs> right? Glad refund. It says here, we'll help you grow your business or glad to refund you money. You've never done it before. I'm confident in this bold promise. Well, okay, here's the reason why, too, by the way. So I, I create bold claims like that because I'm very picky about who I choose to take on as a client. Yeah. So, you know, and look, here's the deal. I, I, I make bold claims like that because I am confident. If I, pick, if, I'm, if I pick a certain client, then I know for a fact that they've gone through my rigorous, you know, uh, testing and my framework for what I'm looking for specifically. But yeah, at the end of the day, look, you know, if, if I'm not willing to, you know, refund money, for example, if, if, if a client doesn't get the outcome, then I'm pretty terrible at picking clients in the first place, if that's the case. And I, and I was guilty of that in the past. I learned my lessons though. And I know a lot more about what I need to see in order to, you know, for that to make sense. But going back to the scenario about, look, you know, it, you as an advertiser, since our only goal is producing outcome and profit, not leads, like we said earlier, I can't, I can't say something like that and also not be willing to refund money if I didn't produce that outcome for someone. I mean, that's not fair to the business. And look, you know, I really truly believe that, that, that if I choose to take on a client, I will genuinely have a positive impact in their lives. I've got plenty of testimonials that have already, you know, produced that sort of outcome. Um, and, and I'm cautious and I'm careful and patient to ensure that, 
I do my due diligence with picking a client just as much as, as a client should do due diligence in picking me as, as their advertiser. And if I don't produce an outcome, uh, you know, then I don't deserve to make money. But again, I'm not really too worried about that because if I choose to take on a client, then, then I know there is always, uh, you know, they've reached, they've, they've been went my, past my, my vigorous standards. And, you know, in this world, most people, you know, they'll, they'll bring on clients for maybe three to six months and then they'll lose them. You know, um, and my average, the average amount of time that clients stay with me is, is usually somewhere between a year and a half to two years. In fact, my very first client I ever started running ads for, uh, we've been together now for about two and a half years, mm-hmm. you know? So, so when I lose clients, it's always, it's, it's always a long time after we initially started that point. Um, and, and you know, when your average retention is a year and a half or more in, in, a, in an industry where, um, the majority of people leave within three to six months. Mm-hmm. And then also I don't have contracts either, by the way, I don't, I don't require anyone to sign. So I have to continuously create benefit for them every single month. Mm-hmm. And, and again, you know, that's part of the reason why I believe um, that I, I do better. When I first started my business, you know, I focused on being a cheap lead generation source for, mm-hmm. for a lot of the businesses and, and uh, specifically they dentists. Want, right? They thought they wanted leads. I mean, whenever business yeah. is on. I thought they wanted leads too. I didn't know any better, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then I started, hearing all, I started hearing all these problems. Oh, wait a minute. You know, we're, we're not making the kind of money we thought. You know, hey, the people are coming in. They're not buying stuff. Oh, wait a minute. Now, you know, we got high no-call no-shows. And man, our schedule's all sort of messed up. And, you know, opportunity costs are skyrocketing now at all. I'm like, whoa. So I had to lose a lot of clients in the very beginning of my business before I really figured out, okay, you know, what's considered a good client to me? Am I going to be able to produce the outcome that I think I'm going to for these people? You know, is there systems and process issues that are going to be, the, be going to be problems? Am I setting the proper expectations for what they should be expecting? You know, like in the very beginning, I really, really was like, Hey, look, this is going to be great. We're going to get a bunch of leads. You're going to get all the, make all this money. It's going to be great. And then I realized pretty quickly that, whoa, actually the first month can, can be kind of, kind of all over the place because, you know, when you are, when you're like, you know, all of a sudden drinking from a fire hose because you have all this new business coming in and also you've got inefficient processes on the back end, all of a sudden you're just dumping a bunch of money down the drain and not making mm-hmm. money. So I lost a bunch of clients in the beginning before I got to the point now where I retained them. And it was all because my focus was on leads. And that's why when, I, when my focus changed to cost per acquisition and truly focusing on profitability over cost per lead, uh, that's where I started to retain clients for years. And that's why my focus now is totally different compared to that. So, so yeah, if I take you on and I don't make money or if I don't make you money, I don't deserve to make money in the process either. I'll give your money back. You know, I'm not really, and I have no qualms about that sort of stuff because I'm, I've, I'm confident now that's not going to happen. You know, it's interesting that you put the, you put the onus back on you, you put the pressure back on you to perform mm-hmm. um, and make the right choices at the start. And I think mm-hmm. that's a great way to run a business because at the end of the day, I mean, when we were running an IT business, we had a guarantee. Um, and I said, don't ever get excited about the fact that you never get your money back because the reality is, is we're not going to let that happen because right. pressure's on us. Yeah. And so number one is making the right choice about the right customer. The start mm-hmm. it's your model mm-hmm. because then you're not making a decision about taking their money. You're making a decision whether you have to give it back. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and you know, if, if you ever, it's a very different conversation in your mind. Yeah. You can, yeah. Go, I'm going to give his money back, and I don't. I don't think I have to give his money back from day one. So yeah. you run away from those people, and I think that's a good way to repel the the wrong customer. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And and like. It's, it's the way that I look at, at my relationships with my clients is, you know, I'm, I'm a trusted advisor to them. I'm not a vendor, you know, because if, if I'm a vendor, you know, that's a commodity, it's easy to be replaced. Um, you know, I really truly care about ensuring that my clients do get the outcome that they're expecting by working with me. Uh, and so as a result, you know, if they don't, 
I'm very, very cautious about, about not, you know, ruining my reputation. It's a small world too. I mean, in a lot of these circles, you know, if, if whether it's auto dealers, auto dealers talk, they're, they're all connected with each other. Oh, you know? Associations, right? Everybody, that group. Yeah. <laughs> Chiropractors, dentists, they're all the same. I mean, they're all deeply connected in their worlds. And so if you go about just running a, a really crappy business where you care more about, you know, making money than actually doing the right thing and having integrity and actually helping people and really caring about that sort of stuff. If, if you run your business that way, you're going to, you're not going to last as a business very long. And, mm -hmm. and, you know, I made the conscious decision a long time ago that I want to run a very, very long business. that's going to be around for a very long time. That's going to produce results for a very long time. And I might not be growing and skyrocketing in growth. I mean, some people, some peers of mine have, you know, 100 200 clients in like two years or something like that but also like you, i hear stories about how the wheels are falling off and they've got all these you know turnover issues and people didn't get the get what they expected and their retention went down to three months and four months and i'm like man look you know if you do the right thing and you build things you know off of a solid foundation brick by brick versus trying to build an entire house on a shaky foundation that you know that house of cards can can fall down quickly and you ruin your reputation. You know, it takes years to develop a strong reputation and it could be one bad thing that just destroys it for you in the first, you know, in, in one fell swoop. So you got to oh cautious, you know, constantly guard that sort of stuff. And you know, if a client didn't make money and I kept their money, first off, number one, they're going to file a charge back and it's going to completely ruin my, <laughs> my credit card processing in the first place. So, I mean, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah that, that's a big problem that I would have to mitigate. But also, I mean, look, it's the right thing to do. You know, I mean, if you're not willing to put your money where your mouth is, then, then, then why are you in business? You know, if you don't believe that you're going to produce an outcome of, of X, Y, Z, then why are you in the business? Like you've got to have a business where you're actually, you have to look at yourself in the mirror at the end of the day and say, look, did I leave this world a better place than where I started today? And if you can't say that, if you're taking money from people and you shouldn't, you know, then, then no, you, you, you can't look in that mirror and really like who you are. And I love being able to sleep very well at night, not worried about that sort of stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's the danger is that you can get caught in this whole growth phase and then end up getting caught the other end because you can't keep up the supply of those services and the, and the demand. Yep. I've seen a few people do that where they've grown and, and, and then either they come back wiser and they, they reinvent themselves mm -hmm. or just disappear. Um, you don't see yeah. them. And I think that's the, the lesson that they learned is that they, they didn't really learn a lesson. You know? Yeah. Yeah, they, they, just, they grew, they grew, they grew, they grew too fast. And there is, you know, growing too fast is, is, is problematic in many ways, you know. Um, and that's, you know, that's something that a lot of businesses, they'll either learn the hard way. I mean, look, there's a reason why 95% of businesses fail within five years or after five years or something like that. I mean, it is not easy to run a business. It's really not. I mean, you, like, for example, you know, in the past when I was 40 grand in debt, you know, I, I lost like, I had four different houses that I was trying to flip at one point and, and two of them I had to do a deed in lieu of foreclosure. Um, and then, you know, one of them I broke even on and the fourth one I finally made a bunch of money on, but man, that was like a two year process. And, mm -hmm. and it was, it was miserable. And you know, I could take voluntary demotion in my job at the time. So I could, I went from, you know, B2B sales to retail sales. So I could do my dream of flipping houses. And my dream was like, look, I want to, I want to make a lot of money flipping houses. And, and I realized that money is not a good motivator. It's really not. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you have to Lifestyle change has to be the first point. What? lifestyle has to be the first point is that, you know, how are you going to live? What, what are you going to do? Yeah. Yeah. But also like, you know, also having a business that actually serves some sort of a purpose or impact that's more than just, you know, you know, cause if, if your goal is to make money in business, that that should be the outcome of what you produce. Instead it should be, you know, my goal should be to produce value. If you produce value, money is always an outcome of, of, of being able to do that sort of stuff. And so if you focus on the, the you know, producing value first, making money second, 
uh, I've found that that is a much better blueprint towards success and um, in every in your entire culture from the ground up it, it's 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 entirely set by that you know, by that principle of focusing on producing value and then making money second and if you do that you can find ways to scale how you do that and that's you know how much money you make is a direct correlation on how much value you produce to people in the world or finding an audience that, that needs something and then being able to to, to provide that that, that benefit or service to be able to help them reach that, that, you know, value point. Uh, so if you don't focus on value first, you're, you're in the wrong business or you need to take a step back, maybe meditate for a little bit, maybe go on like a spiritual journey or a walkabout or something or do whatever you need to do, but come back again, fully focused on, on other people and not you. Yeah. You know, the more you make it about you, the worse it gets unless you're, totally. um, unless you're at the end of the day, most of the people, if you look at the pe people of, like Richard Branson and all those sort of guys, they do make it about themselves, but they've got the right to do so because they've made it about the customer all the way through. Oh yeah, but also like you know, behind Richard Branson, you know, Richard Branson is a he's you know he's a celebrity entrepreneur at this point. But look, you know, he he didn't build a business on happenstance. I mean, you know, Virgin Virgin Mobile was a great service. You know, Virgin Airlines. Uh, you know, they have the Virgin Hotel chain. You know, the, the brand is strong, and there's a certain outcome and experience that you're looking for, and you, you're going to get that customer service every single time. And when you think about Virgin, you, you say positive things about their brand afterwards. So maybe maybe Richard. I mean, Richard Branson is. Uh, you know, you look at guys like him and, and he doesn't really do a whole lot nowadays. I mean, he's hired everyone to do everything for him, of course. Mm. Um, but but I can tell you that all the people he's hired have been that customer-centric, customer-focused. I mean, look at Jeff Bezos. Mm. What, what Amazon, what Amazon.com had done in mm. the world is, is go customer first. Yes. And, you know, look, their margins might not be huge. You know, their average margin for the majority of the products is what, 2%, 3%? I mean, Amazon Prime, they're losing money on shipping, you know, to be able to even give you all the stuff that you need. Yeah. But they're customer focused. They're customer centric. They obsess about the customers. And when you look at the richest man in the world who just recently lost $39 billion in the, in the most expensive divorce in the history of mankind, and he's still the wealthiest person in the world after losing $40 billion. Maybe his business model about focusing on the customer first instead of yeah, yourself. Actually, story about it. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I think at the end of the day, like in, even Richard Branson, he, I read somewhere where he, he still shuts down a lot of business. I've read his current book. He rewrote one of the books and basically he says, oh, we've got 600, I think 600 businesses they have interest in or something. Mm. And, and he said, we still shut them down. You know, we still shut, we still have failures. We still start oh. a business. And oh yeah. Shut them down. We shut them down quickly because he says, then we know that they're not working and we know that it's not going to, you know, we're not going to keep on flogging a dead horse. And I think that's, yeah. that's there's the, a big difference between quitting and, and not having an economically viable product. And then, you know, making the conscious decision to not keep putting money into a, a, a black hole of, of, mm -hmm. uh, of wealth death, you know? <laughs> and so, you know, so many people get so romantic and they're like, look, you know, they keep chasing after this. Uh, they keep putting, you know, good money towards bad. And, and, and the problem in that scenario is that, you know, sometimes you have to know when to fold and when to hold and, and when to keep pushing and when to quit and when to, you know, make the conscious decision to, to not burn more money just because you're romantic about an idea or a business, you know, attached to it. Yeah. And I mean, that's the hard part about it. I think you look back, some businesses, you know, they should have given up earlier. Other businesses, they should have kept going and it's very hard to know the outcome. But at the end of the day, I suppose it's, it's individuals whether, whether they can really bear the time. And the yeah. Time. It, it is a purely logical decision too. I mean, yeah. a decision to keep putting more money into like, for example, like, you know, like Sears putting more money into the brick and mortar stores. Look, retail's dead. I mean, it's, it's Sears isn't coming back. And, and the, the whole idea about, they keep on, they, you know, there's only one blockbuster left. And the reality is, is they, 
you know, they, they knew it was coming, but they wouldn't want to give oh, yeah. up on it. You know, they kept on. So, here's a really funny story. I mean, I'm not even joking about this. This is actually a true story. So back in the day when I used to work for um, a, a mobile marketing company, this mobile marketing company was introduced to Blockbuster back in 2006, 2007. And I was part of that team. Um, and Blockbuster at the time, you know, they, they were losing market share to Redbox uh, because Redbox's experience was great. They didn't have all these, you know, ridiculous late fees you had to deal with. And so, you know, Blockbuster's business model was, was just, you know, toxic towards these, these new contenders like Netflix, where you can get DVDs in the mail all of a sudden. Yeah, and Redbox. Yeah, you know? and, and like they, you know, it's, it's funny because, you know, when you look at what killed, Net, um, you know, Blockbuster, a lot of people say it's because of Netflix and it's because of Redbox. No, what killed Blockbuster is because they were non-consumer centric business models, you know? Um, and when you look at these, these other people- The movie back, you were scared to go in there. Yeah. Some just people would go in for weeks because they knew yeah. a big news that had to- yeah. People, you know, businesses that come and disrupt an industry are not necessarily businesses that suddenly do something, you know, outrageously different. I mean, Netflix streams content to, you know, Blockbuster, you know, they, they, had, they had brick and mortar stores. But back when I was working for this, this marketing company, um, you know, it was, they, they were, we started to work with Blockbuster at one point. I don't, I don't think I'm under NDA anymore, but, um, but, but, you know, one of our other clients was, uh, uh, you know, another prominent electronics maker um, at the time. And so Blockbuster tasked us with figuring out how to increase average revenue per transaction in their stores by selling consumer electronics and kind of merging into like a Best Buy kind of scenario where you can walk in, you can buy, you know, a, a gaming console, you can buy a DVD player, a Blu-ray player, and a potentially a TV and a DVD. And it's yeah. like, you know, awesome. when you, yeah, when you look at that at the time, you know, like, look, they were, they were, they were, I didn't realize it at the time, you know, but they were desperate and, and they were, you know, it was the canary in the coal mine. Actually, the canary in the coal mine was probably significantly earlier than that. Mm. But when you're a business that's been movies and all of a sudden you're now branching out into these other, you know, products, just because you've got foot traffic in your retail stores or whatever, you're done at that point. Cause look, you know, Netflix and Redbox, you know, it's funny cause Redbox was apparently the, the quote unquote blockbuster killer. But look at Redbox now. Redbox is nothing compared to Netflix. Netflix mm. is huge, you know? Mm. And what Netflix did better was like, look, we're not going to charge you a late fee. We're going to give you all this content. Keep it as long as you want to, you know, and when you're done, we'll give your discs, discs back. And then, Hey, you know, if you want to stream on devices now, which at the time streaming didn't even exist when I was part of this whole process. Yeah. But now you want to stream on your devices. Now you can watch some of the best content in the world and you never have to leave your home. Mm -hmm. And so, wow, that's customer experience. I can watch movies now and I don't have to deal with some snot nosed teenager behind the counter that doesn't even want to deal with me looking at their phone the whole time rather than checking me out. The movie you go down the rent is not available because it's been rented. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. You walk into like, Oh my God, my disc isn't here. Like I've been waiting for this movie. Where can I get it? Uh, I don't know. You're gonna have to wait. Yeah. Cool. All right. And, and so like, yeah, non, well, non customer. Like put a new machine or back in the days with tape, but it's even worse. Yeah. Yeah. Up, actually recorded over the top of it. So yeah. all I you take it back to the store and they go with the, so it was all the, you know, like you'd done something wrong. Right. So when you go oh, back yeah. and you're trying to slip that one in quick and hope that someone else notices that you didn't bust it. <laughs> it's funny. You know, it's like, yeah, they were always looking for ways to nickel and dime you on everything, you know? Yeah. And it's like, look, the, the world is moving towards a customer centric first business model. When you look at a lot of these quote unquote unicorns, or when you look at a lot of these businesses that have, uh, that, that have suddenly skyrocketed, I would love to say it's because of really great advertising, but it's really not. I mean, I, I would say the best advertising is 
doing the right thing and having a positive word of mouth presence in, in, in the, in the world out there, you know, like, like look at Uber, Uber doesn't do a ton of advertising, but I started using Uber a long time ago by hearing about other friends who had, Hey, this is a great experience, dude. I don't have to worry about this cabbie who's going to suddenly charge me. And I have no idea what I'm going to pay by the end of it. I'm just going to pay whatever I'm supposed to pay and have no idea. Mm -hmm. And yet, wait a minute. Now I know exactly what I'm going to pay. Now I know exactly where my driver is. I knew who this driver is. I trust this person. Wow. The customer centric business model is one that is good. And if you embrace it as a business, you will be successful regardless of your advertising activities. Your advertising will support that rather than, you know, replace it. But, but if you are a customer centric business model, you will win versus businesses that are not. So if you focus more on the customers, going full circle again, of course, mm-hmm. if you focus going you know, on the customers, you make them the hero and you're just merely helping them on their journey. And, and they're the ones that are the, the, the main you know, protagonist in the story, not you. That is, those are the businesses that are doing well now. So be a customer obsessed business. If it's good for Jeff Bezos, it's good for all of us. Yeah, for sure. And at the end of the day, no matter how much you want to beat him up, at the end of the day, he's still in the checkbook. (laughs) I mean, look, I I live in Washington state, my own backyard. So it's, it's, it's an interesting part of the world in in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, You know, I've got Portland, you know, which is where Nike and, and, you know, Adidas are headquartered. Uh, Bend, Oregon is where the last blockbuster uh, store is. And that's about, you know, we had one in Australia shut down a couple, about a month or so ago, the last one in Australia shut down. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's almost like you know people actually go to that store in Bend now because it's the last blockbuster. It's like a, you know, <laughs> it's an experience now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now it's experience. Now it's going customer centric suddenly. <laughs> like, oh my god, I want to, I want to rent this, this you know, <laughs> relic of of DVDs. Well, stuff. You see, in Captain Marvel, they did, they must have filmed it there because they yeah. Captain Marvel. Um, if you, I don't know if you've seen Captain Marvel, but in the real very start of it, they've actually got the lanes and blockbuster. Oh yeah, Oregon and Washington have a pretty big business. Uh, you know, they have a pretty big uh, TV business and, and and movies and film and stuff. But you know, it's funny too because also if you go two hours north, two and a half hours north, that's where Seattle is, and that's where you know Bill Gates and you know uh, Jeff Bezos and all those guys are. Boeing, um, all those companies are are all two and a half hours north. So you know where I am in my corridor across you know the Pacific Northwest. There's a lot of interesting stuff in this in this neck of the woods, and and you know I can learn a lot from the top two richest people in the world that are two, three hours north from me just based <laughs> off of other businesses. And Pay attention to what's going on around you. Yeah. 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 Totally. So fantastic talking with you. We've probably got over a little bit of time. I don't know whether they're not making this a part one or a part two. We'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> at the table, we might have you know, two parts. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. I think, um, you know, I didn't want to come in on the basis of talking about Facebook ads. I want to talk about the psychology around it, which is really what you delivered. So I'm really grateful you to Perfect. Sort of make around that area because I think it's interesting if someone can get one idea out of this and I think at the end of the day it's cost per acquisition is, is a yes. big one but I think at the end of the day if they get one idea out of this process then it, then the conversation has been worthwhile because then, then maybe they'll save some money on their ads and actually get a result at the other end so totally totally yeah, yeah. and I appreciate the opportunity to you know speak with your audience and and uh, and help out anyone out there you know I'm at everyone else's service I'm not here for myself so I uh, appreciate the opportunity so how do they get in touch with you if you do want to sell them something <laughs> Well, hey, I mean, hey, if you want to buy something, don't get me wrong. I'll sell you stuff too. <laughs> <laughs> so here's your time to chance for a bit of shameless promotion before we wrap up. <laughs> yeah. So uh, if you want to find me, you know, you can go to my website, which is uh, www.actionad.agency, mm-hmm. um, not .com, it's not .agency. Or you can also find me on Facebook at uh, facebook.com forward slash action ads agency. Um, you can also find me on facebook.com um, uh, forward slash Casey Carroll live, uh, C-A-R-R-O-L-L live 
Um, and you'll see me, you know, basically flexing with a lizard on my head, uh, calling myself the digital advertising sensei or digital marketing sensei. But, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, if you're looking to, to get some help or if you're interested in seeing if we're a good fit for each other, feel, feel free to, you know, reach out to any one of those channels and, uh, you know, we'll plan to, to chat and see if we're a good fit and go from there. Cool. We'll put the links up on the outside as well for you. So this is really great. Cool. So grateful again, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks again. Appreciate it. You've just been listening to another great Evolvepreneur podcast interview. We hope you enjoyed it. Please visit evolvepreneur.biz today to find out more about our online community and how you can take part.